Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. It's me again, the same guy from every episode. I'm, never, I'm called different things by different guests, so at this point I kind of have given up on calling myself something, as you might have gathered. And last time, Henry and I talked about Banjo-Kazooie, so we're just going to go right into Banjo-Tooie. It was released two years later, in the year 2000, and even the story of the game takes place two years later. That's something that all the Banjo games do, is that any the year they're released is also how many years since the last game it's been. I think a lot of games kind of like to poke fun at themselves like that. I think No More Heroes did something kind of similar with the gap between one and two. I don't see a lot of games that do that. I know uh, Nuts and Bolts made a joke about how the last major game was in 2000. Banjo-Tooie is the sequel to Banjo-Kazooie, and it's kind of what I colloquially in my head call it as a Majora's Mask sequel, where it's specifically designed for people who beat the first one, and it's a little tougher as a result. It's harder, it's bigger, and it required the uh, N64's expansion pack. Coincidentally, I got both this game and Majora's Mask on the same Christmas. Huh. Same. They were both darker than their predecessors, too, so it was, it was an unexpectedly dark Christmas. Banjo-Tooie is definitely a darker game because, first of all, we see that Gruntilda getting caught under a rock for two years has decayed her entire body. She's a skeleton now. Rather than, you know, dying. To be fair, she doesn't seem really that worse off. No, not she's not much different from when we saw her last. Yeah, in fact, she just seems more annoyed than anything. <laughs> yeah. But she immediately, like, shoots, like, big spells all over Spiral Mountain to destroy it. And she and her sisters and their drill tank... Just cause a bunch of havoc and destruction. And the, like, there's a path of destruction that you follow all throughout the game. She she literally kills Bottles, the guy who taught you your moves. Like, you you can go into her lair; it's all decayed and destroyed, and she's ripped Cheeto's pages out of his book. It, it, the stakes are immediately high. Like, she has a death ray in this game. Uh, yeah. She never really uses the death ray much, but it's there. Well, at least this case, we have an explanation as to why she doesn't use it much. It's, it's taking time to recharge. Yeah, but as I was saying, it's a darker game, and I think it's even reflected in the music somewhat. Most of the songs are in a minor key instead of a major key. Most of them, uh, Spiral Mountain's theme is remixed to be a much more somber tone. Yeah, like Spiral Mountain in this game, like just, just for reference... The first game, Spiral Mountain, the tutorial area, is almost expertly designed to teach players how to play Banjo-Kazooie. And it just had this bright, chipper cartoon music the whole time. Yeah, played with a banjo. Yeah. And then Banjo-Tooie, it's all dilapidated and destroyed. Things don't quite work as they used to. It's, like, really just it's devastated. I actually saw like the target demos back in the day i saw spiral mountain it was all destroyed i was like what happened why is it like this now <laughs> yeah, that's what i thought when i first saw it uh this game is also much more heavily invested in the story than kazooie was yeah it's, it's a lot more of a cinematic experience which is not to say that's bad 
it's a much grander scale, so it needs it probably needs those cutscenes to back it up. Yeah, if there's one thing I could say about Tui in comparison to Kazooie, it's that it's big, maybe even bloated, but for better or worse, it's a bigger game than Banjo. Compare Mumbo's Mountain in the first game to Mayahem Temple in the second game. You could probably fit three, maybe four Mumbo's Mountains in here. Yeah, Mayahem Temple is it's even bigger than Quick Clock Wood from the Kazooie. Yeah, it's kind of goes into what we were talking about in the last episode about Click Clock Wood possibly being a Tui level that got moved over to Kazooie for development or balance reasons. Possibly. I Like I said, I had to see it as a precursor to what we would get in Tui. All the levels are bigger. Jiggies are harder to get, and you get new moves. One thing I like about this game that most games of its type don't do is that you start the game with all the moves you had in the previous game. Yeah, and you can even skip the tutorials for them. Mm-hmm. And they even expand on that by giving you new moves to use throughout the game. Yeah, they really just take everything from the first game and then add more. Well, they finally get the ability to split up in this game, as an example. Yeah. That, that, that's kind of how they get around... Like, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Henry, that uh, the splitting up takes up most of the new moves in the game because every move that Banjo and Kazooie learn together, most of them are just egg types. Mm -hmm. Most of the new moves you learn are things just for Banjo and Kazooie to do on their own with some divide-and-conquer gameplay. They really wanted to make use of the split-up mechanic. Now, going back to how big the worlds are, you can teleport to different points in the world with a refined version of the warp system that Donkey Kong 64 introduced. The pads, yeah. Yeah, you get little teleporter pads. And even in the overworld, which I like less than Grunty's Lair, the ILO Hags is a lot more impersonal and generic and smaller. Like, there's a lot less character to it. And I on the other hand, I say that's what makes it unique in this case, is it's meant to be very imposing, very... It's not imposing. I think it is. It's much bigger than Gruntilda's Lair. No, it's it's actually kind of smaller. There are fewer areas. Few, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, keep in mind that you're not going through portals to enter different worlds this time. The different levels you go into are part of the Isle of Hags, so... Which I, is nice. But... Yeah, it's actually part of the landscape. So while the aisle itself may be smaller, the world, the different levels are bigger to compensate. So I, I feel it's more imposing that way, personally. Like imposing? Like, like, imposing means, like, intimidating. How do you mean that... Big, big, well, bigger scale, for one. I guess I'm saying the levels are more imposing than the actual aisle of hags, but you're right, it is kind of small. Yeah, and... But it's also meant to be very impersonal, very sterile. Which... I don't like, because Gruntilda's Lair is one of the artistic strengths of the first game. It's got it's full of life and personality. And I will admit to you that Isle of Hags is a place I consistently forget about. Well, I mean, I originally started talking about Isle of Hags so I could talk about how you could warp around here, just like the levels, but I feel like that was a more meaningful topic anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Just the overall tone of the game, besides being darker and a bit snippier and more sardonic, too, is the game actually is more sterile than the first one, and you, you used a good word for it, like, counters for things. Now, I kind of like the look of it better this way, so I can't hold it against the game too much, but 
things like the egg counter, the feather counter, life meters and stuff, they're a lot more subdued, neater, more organized. Right, versus the first game where there are these big, they're colorful. Yeah, the HUD is very expressive in the first game. Where it is a lot more subdued, like you said. And again, that goes with the tone of the game, where it's meant to be a darker, more, a darker story. Yeah, which, again, I have mixed feelings for. I like the organization of the second one, but I do wish it had a bit more personality. Yeah, this game is often very divisive within the Banjo community is that you either love Kazooie or you love Tui. There's not really a whole lot of in-between. I mean, I like both games, but I'm one of the ones that actually prefers Tui over Kazooie. I was going to kind of save that for the end of the episode. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm not really sure which one I like the most, because the last one I played was Tui, and that was about six years ago. And I, I tried to play Kazooie, but I couldn't really get it to work for some reason. I feel like Kazooie is probably the better designed game, but I do appreciate the bigger scope and expanded universe that Tui provided. The fact that these games were really so close to each other and that their development even affected each other, in my brain, I kind of see them as just one conjoined package more than anything else. Now maybe nowadays the best way to play them is to play one after the other. It's kind of a tough comparison. I mean, we can all agree that Nuts and Bolts is not a good banjo game. It's an okay game, but not a good banjo game. But between Kazooie and Tui, it really does come down to personal preference. Ukulele isn't a great banjo game either. <laughs> Save that for another time, dude. I already did that episode. Oh, that's right. But They're actually making another ukulele game. I heard they are, and I don't know why. Uh, probably because they made so much money with the Kickstarter of the first game. Uh, possibly. Uh, it looks better, at least, so maybe this will redeem it. So, now that we've talked about future projects, let's go back to Tui. One thing about Tui that I do appreciate more than Kazooie is that every level has a boss. I find it interesting because that's a thing I would also appreciate, but I can also imagine people thinking that that makes the bosses a little less special or makes the worlds feel a little more... Uh, samey? Yeah, samey, a little more cookie-cuttery. It's like, oh, here's the boss for this one, and here's the boss for this one. Compared to the first game where bosses were very sporadic. Like Sometimes a world would have a boss, sometimes they wouldn't. Yeah, and of course, Grunty is the final boss in both games. That's not exactly a spoiler. But actually, going to Grunty is, it reminds me of that thing in the video essays we were watching by VG... I don't know how to introduce him to anyone because I barely know him myself. It's just YouTube videos we watched. But he said that the presence of more bosses in the game kind of makes the Hag 1 battle at the end a little less meaningful because I believe his words are something along the lines of Grunty just being another in the list of bosses instead of just being a challenge out of nowhere. I can see where he's coming from on that. And at least to their credit, the bosses are well designed to where they all have different strategies. Uh, Although a lot of them do come down to shoot with egg. I think more of them do than they don't. Okay. I'm trying to, okay, what ones are not shoot with egg? Um, oh, King Cole's one of them? Although you can't shoot him with eggs. I thought you are supposed to shoot King Cole with eggs. Uh, you can go up and rat-a-tat-rap him. Eh. That's what I did. 
Actually, okay, uh, I redact my statement. The bosses are all shoot with egg. Except maybe Klungo. Except for Klungo, who appears three different times, and uh, Minji Jongo, because you don't need to use eggs on Oh, yeah. And Grundy, of course, is a multi-stage boss fight. But you use eggs on her, so... Oh, one other thing that Banjo-Tooie does that is a little weird for a platformer game. A first-person shooter mode. Oh, yeah, they introduce a first-person shooter ability where you use Kazooie as kind of a rifle. They, they were really proud of this mode because it shows up in a lot of the worlds to the point where it takes over most of the final battle. Yeah, it does. Let's see. It appears in Mayhem Temple, Gorticulch Mine. Um, well, we, we don't need to go down the yeah, list. Yeah, because yeah, they were really proud of it. It kind of goes into a problem I have with the final battle that it doesn't take place in standard gameplay. And I really like that about the first Grunty fight is that it challenged all your moves. But here it's just, hey, remember the bird gun ability again? Now, granted, that's oversimplifying it to a degree, but by and large, it's mainly just another first-person shooter segment. The worlds are really big, really interconnected, and you can't even complete most of the worlds until you come back with a skill from a later level that some have called it a 3D Metroidvania. Which is not necessarily a bad thing, because Metroid is beloved. Well, I was wondering how accurate you found the statement to be. I never played Metroid at the time when I first got Banjo-Tooie, but having played it since, I'd say that's fairly accurate. Because the idea behind the Metroidvania is it's an open world, but you can't get everywhere until you have certain abilities. Same thing here. Yeah, all right. Or if you know how to glitch. Huh. Yeah, well that that's a whole new can of worms. What is your favorite level in Banjo-Tooie? In Tooie? Favorite level? Hmm. Actually, I do have one, and given my own dislike for this at some points, you may actually find it weird. Jolly Rogers Lagoon. Really? Yes. I think it's because the entire, most of the level takes place underwater, and you don't have to worry about air, and it's just so beautiful to look at. It was very nice of them to think, you know what, there's a lot of swimming in this level, let's just get that out of the way now. Oxygen in the water! Yep. Oh, um, going back a little bit, uh, Mumbo in the last game provides you with transformations. Here, he's actually playable. Yeah, you gotta play as Mumbo, and then you take him to certain spots in the levels, and he'll have a unique spell for each world. Right. Uh, in the case of Jolly Rogers Lagoon, it literally oxygenates the water to where you can breathe it. My favorite level is one that I kind of have a bit of a love-hate relationship with, where I didn't really like going through it, but I'm in love with a lot of the concepts that go into the design of this level. You probably know where I'm going with this. My favorite level would probably be Grunty Industries. I, I thought. Grunty Industries is very interesting, as it requires... Well, in the second level, you actually have to beat a boss in order to get access to a train, which is required to get into Grunty Industries proper. The thing is, once you get to Grunty Industries, you can't enter the meat of the level. You have to find some other way around. So you have to use the train that travels through the different worlds, which highlights the interconnectivity. And it really comes across as a big puzzle. You have to unlock the level bit by bit rather than having it all available to you at once, which 
I think more of the worlds could have done that whole piece by piece unlocking rather than giving it to you all at once. It probably would have helped the gameplay a little bit. I'm not sure because it feels like a mark of difficulty with Grunty Industries. I don't think the other levels really would have benefited from that too much. That's a good point. But Grunty Industries is definitely an example. I think it's the only world that does that, come to think of it. It is one of the most labyrinthine levels in the entire Banjo continuity. Well, I mean, it is a giant factory. Yeah. What does the factory even make? I don't think we're ever told. It makes pollution. Well, I mean, it is Grunty. Grunty has a lot of weird side projects going on. Actually, uh, we could say it makes underwear, considering the transformation of that level. Where you turn into a washing, washing machine. machine. Can we really talk about this, though? Grunty has a lot of weird side ventures. She does! She has that factory, she has a theme park, she has a boat. Like, what is she doing in her spare time? <laughs> what? Okay, better question. What is she not doing? I know, she's a mechanic in Nuts and Bolts. Like, like what? I just want to watch, like, uh, like, like inside the actor's studio, but with, like, Gruntilda as the guest. I want to figure out what's going on with her head. That would be kind of amazing, actually. I would watch that. You know what they... She's slowly becoming my favorite character. <laughs> just because... Speaking of characters, I brought back... We talked about transformations. Well, we have a new character to deal with transformations this time around. Oh, yeah, instead of a uh, little skeleton man transforming you the cast adds the new edition of the oh wow you really went there native american character who transforms banjo instead actually i think the oh wow you went there part should be reserved for nuts and bolts when they suddenly downsize her and then give her a very skimpy outfit no i'm not joking i mean at least she's less like less of a racial caricature at least I, she still looks very Native American. Well, she is Native American. She can look like it. She just, like, here in this game, though, she's just like, okay, very stereotypical. Her name is Humba Wumba. And she and Mumble have a rivalry. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on with that. Also, I guess Banjo learns moves from Jam Jars now, who is the brother of Bottles. And very much a military drill sergeant type. Yeah, which... Kind of fits with the whole more serious nature of Tui versus Kazooie. Like, in the first game, it's just a guy teaching you moves. In the second game, it's a drill structure giving you military cadences. They introduce a lot of new characters, and they show how far some of the characters from the first game have fallen. Or gotten, like, uh, let's see, Bottles Families in this game? Those are new characters. New characters, sorry. Now, going, by, going with new characters, Bottles Families in this game with a... Yeah, Jolly Roger is a new character who he even shows up again in Nuts and Bolts. Yep, along with his assistant. I don't, I don't think his assistant appears in Nuts and Not Bolts. Not in Nuts and Bolts, but he does have an assistant in Tui. Uh, going back to old characters, I already mentioned how Cheeto had all his pages ripped out. That becomes a new collectible. you got to find his pages and, or, and give them back to him. Then there's Boggy the Polar Bear. In the first game, he was a dutiful dad... And, well, he got a little distracted, admittedly. Then you had to get presents for his kids on Christmas, and it was sad at first. But now it's, yay, they're back. And now in this game, all the kids are spoiled brats. And he's just, like, openly watching, like, weird British innuendo shows in the living room of his igloo. It's like, oh, Boggy, what happened to your family? What happened to you, man? I don't remember if it was Boggy or Bottles, but Nuts and Bolts, 
at least one of them got divorced from their family. I think it was Boggy. I don't remember Bottles. Like, holy cow, what is going on with the Bear family in the last two years? Yeah, what happened to you guys? Of um, course, Tootie is nowhere to be seen. Cloud does have a reference to her, though. She's on a milk carton. Yeah, have you seen this character? Uh, let's see. Oh, um, Captain Blubber, the hippo from the first game. He comes back. Yeah, he... He's broke he again. Is a, he is a character who exists. Yeah, uh, he's broke again. Oh, um, let's see. The Jinjos return in this. Yeah, they, they, they do the Jinjo system a little differently than in the first game. And I think this is really just indicative of the shift in focus in gameplay. Because before, you just get five Jinjos in each level. That's about it. Here... You get different amounts of different colored Jinjos scattered all throughout the game at random. And it's really interesting because you could get all the Jinjos of a certain color very early on or very later on. I got, in in the playthrough I did six years ago, I got the solitary white Jinjo over in Maya Hen Temple. I got the Jiggy for that. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's usually one of the first ones you get. Oh, also, it also introduces the Minjos, which are evil Jinjos. You're supposed to think they're Jinjos, but oops, they're actually enemies. It reminds me of how they had the poison mushrooms in Super Mario Brothers: The Lost Levels, how they were very similar to the mushrooms, but yeah, realize quickly that they're they're trying to play tricks on you. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you got the um, let's see other characters. That I don't think we need to. We don't need to go down the list, but. There is a new character we do need to discuss because of the change in opening the levels. Master Jiggy Wiggy. Oh yeah, all the puzzles that, o that open the levels are now hosted by a guy named Jiggy Wiggy. And instead of seeking out the puzzles, you just go back to him every time, which I think contributes to the, the impersonal nature of the Isle of Hags, how less character it has. It, it, it streamlines the experience a little bit, but it also feels like it takes some of the fun away. Right, especially if you're like me and like to do 100% runs, you'll have more than enough jiggies to unlock the levels as you go along. I think there are actually fewer jiggies in this game, too. There are 10 less. Yeah. Oh, that being said, uh, notes are now condensed into packs of five, or one and one treble cup in every level for 25. They're not spread out in single digits like they were in... Kazooie, and the notes are no longer used to open the worlds or to get through the Isle of Hags. They're instead used as told to get your moves. I think that's a smarter use for the notes, if I could be honest. And looking back, I I tend to forget the notes weren't originally for learning moves. Right. In the first match, because we usually had to find the molehills in order to get the moves. In Tui, you have to find the you have to find his well, they're not hills, they're silos, and you have to have enough notes, which not hard to do at all. Yeah. Instead, to unlock new parts of the Isle of Hags, you just use the moves that you've learned, which is indirectly using the musical notes, but yeah, it's different enough. It, yeah, it's different. I think that's I think that's a smarter gameplay decision because the moves you pick up, a lot of these moves are... They're a little bit samey this time around compared to the last game. Well, like I said, most of them are just the different types of eggs or their Banjo's solo backpack actions. Right. But, for example, in the first game, you only had one type of egg. This game gives you four new ones. Yeah, and I don't mind that so much. No, I mean, you get fire eggs, you get ice. 
grenade, and then clockwork kazoo eggs, which are so weird. Oh, well, yeah. So fire and ice eggs—they're they're what you expect. Grenade eggs are bombs, and they're basically regular eggs but tougher than the clockwork kazooie eggs, where you control a little robot kazooie, and then it explodes after a time limit or on command. That's probably one of the most creative of the egg types. It's also the least used. Uh, you can use it to try to bypass certain things if you want. I remember I got a Grunty's Industries jiggy early because I used one of the eggs instead of waiting for Kazooie to glide. Hmm. Neat. I suppose you, it can lead to some uh, sequence breaking if you know what you're doing. You also get the ability to shoot eggs in first-person mode while flying and while swimming. Also, this game features the quote-unquote closure to the swap and swap so mm. what are you supposed to do with all the eggs and the ice key and the stuff well if you get the ice key you can unlock the ability to turn kazooie into a dragon in the hub world and it doesn't really affect much it does affect a couple things nothing you couldn't live without yeah true but infinite fire eggs are nice well you could also just use a cheat code for infinite fire eggs yeah true and the eggs of mystery, you just take them to this random chicken woman, and she teaches you how to use Kazooie as a bludgeon. No, another one unlocks Jinjo in the multiplayer segment. Woo! Yeah, bludgeon Kazooie, because I was really hurting for more means of attack. I, I just couldn't think of anything. <laughs> Which is funny, because they actually are bringing that back for Smash Brothers. Yeah, that's Banjo's forward smash attack. So, Smash Brothers Banjo has completed stop and swap. Yes, he has. It also, Smash Brothers Banjo has the Briegel Blaster, so this is definitely post-Tooie, at least. Yeah, that, I have a feeling they're going to borrow more from Kazooie than Tooie, but they're definitely referencing Tooie in some ways. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, yeah, go ahead. The thing about the stop and swap, because we, we intentionally cliffhung that segment so you listen to both episodes because we recreated our own stop and swap cliffhanger, is that... Originally, they wanted you to be able to stop the game and swap the game pack quickly, but the N64 got an upgrade that didn't make that possible. So they had to quickly insert the old items into the new game with like a few random Banjo-Kazooie game packs that are wandering around the Isle of Hags. You just pretend you got them from Banjo-Kazooie. It's, it's just... It's, it's such a band-aid fix. It really is. Uh, as much as I don't like Nuts and Bolts, I will say the XBLA version of Stop and Swap is significantly better. Does, does that have to do with Nuts and Bolts? It unlocks uh, parts for your car in Nuts and Bolts. Oh. Well, I know in the Xbox Live Arcade version of Kazooie and Tooie, Stop and Swap is possible in its original intent, but now it just unlocks like, Xbox homepage desktops as a... Oh, wow, finally, after all this time, that's what I wanted. Yeah, it's... I would say the XBLA version is better implemented, but the reward is not worth it. It's mostly bragging rights at this point. Yeah, well, even in just plain old 64-2-y, again, the, the Dragon Kazooie and the Briegel Bash, they're, they're not that great. Although it is pretty funny to have to slam Kazooie down. Uh... Do you have a favorite boss fight in the game? Because, you know, since bosses are more of a thing, it feels like kind of more of a category this time. I have one specific one. It's also, skipping ahead a little bit, it's also my probably my favorite musical piece from the game. Uh, let's hear it. Weldar. Oh, you the like... The Grunty Industries boss fight. Really? Yes. 
if only because there's a little bit of gameplay and story integration. When the bosses are introduced in this game, they come with the name and then a little blurb about them. Oh, kind of like in like Ocarina of Time, where every boss had a subtitle. Yeah, in this one, Weldar is the short is the short sighted industrial t- uh, torture, something like that. I forget exactly. That actually plays into his boss fight. If you're further away from him, he can't hit you as easily because he can't see you. Hmm. I think my favorite boss fight is one I share with my brother. It's Mr. Patch. That's a good one. The inflatable dinosaur from Witchy World. I remember my brother would go out of his way to do Mr. Patch's boss fight first thing in Witchy World if he could help it. Mm, That is a good one. I mean, yeah, it comes down to all the boss fights. Are, most of the boss fights are pretty much just shoot eggs at them. But at least there are usually different, stu- usually some kind of different stipulation to them. Like Mr. Patch, you have to be flying. And just the fact that he's just a giant inflatable dinosaur and like the music is good. It's just really uh, probably one of the best spectacle fights of the series. It is. Even though they completely butchered him, I like that they at least tried to put him back in Nuts and Bolts. Yeah. And even gave him a, a upgraded counterpart. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not sure. What else is there to say about Tui? Favorite music? Okay, like, we usually do that near the end. Uh, hmm. Well, I, I gotta, gotta give a shout-out to the different versions of Grunty Industries. I have to admit that you're definitely right on that one. I like how especially it starts out kind of goofy sounding in the exterior, but the deeper into the building you go, the more menacing it gets. Yeah, in fact, I think uh, the deeper you go, the less instruments get used. I think uh, I like Gutter Gulch Mines theme a lot. Mm-hmm. But if I have to pick one absolute favorite theme, it's a boss theme. It's Weldar's theme. So it's just kind of a... Just kind of related to my favorite theme. Yeah, there you go, yeah. Let's just say Grunting Industries left an impact on us. Yeah. I, honestly, I felt it was a little too hard to get around in there. Uh, yeah, I, I did say it was more of a love-hate relationship on my end. Yeah. It was it was annoying to get through, but I, I like the creativity involved with it. Though that being said, the transformation into the washing machine is a nice callback to Banjo-Kazooie, where that's one of the fake transformations. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Again, I feel like we could talk about Tui all day long if we were allowed to, but I'm not sure what else there is to say on a podcast about Tui. Yeah, same thing here. Like, I've already mentioned it's my personal favorite of the two. Probably because there's just more to do. And for me, more to do is better. Though not necessarily better if we ever get to DK64. Someone in the comments section of a banjo video, I don't know what one anymore, they said that the most evil thing Gruntilda has ever done was to promise us Banjo 3. (laughs) Yeah, and then we got nuts and bolts. Yeah. Which people are still saying is not Banjo 3. Future Alex here. The audio got really weird, so as a summary... I asked Henry if we think we'll get a new Banjo game now that Ultimate happened. He thinks maybe. I think we'd get a rare replay port at best. But basically, the ship has sailed. Rareware is Microsoft's baby now, and they don't want Banjo anymore anyway. We had ukulele. We had Hat in Time. We need to move on. It was kind of a buzzkill. 
is basically just like the worst case scenarios. Like not only did they not get to be a Nintendo stuff anymore, but they also died as a series and nobody really lo- thinks about them anymore. The only thing, the only game Banjo had even after Nuts and Bolts was Banjo Pilot. Yeah, the game that three people have played. Yeah, and we're, and we're not two of them. No, we are not. So, uh, I don't know. I, at least Banjo is in Smash Brothers. I can finally fulfill my dream. Or, well, no, not yet. If there's a Mumbo Spirit battle, I can play as Squirtle, and I can finally fulfill my lifelong dream of making Squirtle fight Mumbo Jumbo in Super Smash Brothers. Ever since I first rented the original game, I walked out of the store, I was like, I want to make Mumbo and Squirtle fight each other. I finally get to make that come true. And I finally get to see just how Banjo would fare up against Cloud Strife. Yes. Because that's, that's what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Banjo, Cloud Strife, Dracula, they're all in a game together. Yep. Yeah, uh, Ridley. This is, this is all turning into a fan fiction. That's what Smash Bros. has always been, let's be honest here. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to say? No. Okay, well, thanks for being on the show again, Henry. Uh, if you all like listening to this, then, as usual, follow the BitCast on Twitter and subscribe to the BitCast on Podcast One's website and mobile app, and you'll be able to keep up with me as I produce new episodes and I talk about things that will probably be new episodes. And I will see you on the next one. Bye. Listen to BitCast anytime on podcast1.com and on the Podcast One app.